text passage comes from Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, and it's on page 980 of the Pew Bibles. This is the word of God. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is part five in our series, um, the koinonia of grace. Koinonia is a Greek term that means partnership and fellowship. And in some ways, I, I feel like this sermon is just a kind of like part, like a third part of an extended sermon. A lot of the themes of these last couple passages um, start to bleed into each other. Um, but today I want to talk about something that this passage, it seems a little mysterious how it takes these themes together, living a life worthy of the gospel and to live within a unity of what he calls one spirit and one mind and how that also entails willingness to suffer, suffer for Christ. Those are, they all seem like not entirely connected, connected subjects, and it's been something I've been meditating on, and that's what I want to share about with you today. I think this issue of unity, particularly unity in the face of cost, costly suffering, this is a very, very important issue about that, that tests what our life is about. And whether our life is worthy, worthy of the most highest things. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. A unity worthy of the gospel. And in three parts, um, not too difficult. First, part one, I'm going to ask you a question. And that question is, what is worthy of your life? What is worthy of your life? Part two, the unity of one spirit and one mind. This This is an aspect of life. Unity with other people that I think we uh, very much underestimate in our culture in the way we tend to operate today because we tend to be very much thinking about what, how is my life going to work out. But we, we tend to very much underestimate the importance of unity with others. And so that's what I'm going to talk about in part two. A unity of one spirit and one mind in part three. It's, there's a test. The test of suffering and what it means to be united with Jesus Christ. The test of suffering and union with Christ. Part one, what is worthy of your life? Um, this past week, I was listening to my News Digest podcast. If, if any of you guys, I, I, I highly recommend this to you. You can go to iTunes and find this podcast. It's called The World and Everything in It. It's a Christian News Digest. It, it's it basically, I don't know if any of you ever listened to NPR on the radio. It basically sounds like an NPR uh, digest, except the content um, is, is, is Christian, or at least, at least it has a Christian um, position on worldviews. Anyway, this past week they were going through, or I guess this is a, well, they're a little bit, um, I, was, I was listening to older episodes, and they were listening to favorites from 
um, past years, and they had a little story on an area in south southwestern Pennsylvania, and um, it might take you, maybe some of you know this, but on September 11th, 2001, two, 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 uh, two jumbo jets hit the Twin Towers. It was, it was a horrendous act of terrorism by uh, a, a radical Islamic group called Al-Qaeda. I don't know if you know this, but there were actually planned four, there were four jumbo jets that were planned to attack our country. Two of them succeeded. A third one didn't quite succeed, but it did almost reach its destination, and that was the Pentagon. And then there was a fourth jet that was supposed to attack, um, that was supposed to attack our capital. And there is a little bit, in, as, as, as all the investigations has been done, it's a little bit uncertain as to exactly what that particular jumbo jet's target was as a suicide, as a suicide mission. And most people think that that was the Capitol building or possibly the White House. And so this, the reason this particular portion of, I, I was listening very intently to this particular portion of the News Digest because it was a story of Flight United 93. Are you guys familiar with this? Flight United 93. And this was the fourth one that got nowhere near its, its, uh, its, murderous, its murderous aim. Because what happened was this flight, for whatever reason, um, it, it seemed to be, it, it was a flight that was actually leaving Newark, New Jersey, and it was on its way to San Francisco. And so they were heading east to west, and somewhere over Pennsylvania, all of their, their plans, so they, they were going east to west, and the flight, because of, of the way, the, the way, of the way there was so much congestion, there's so many flights taken off from Newark Airport that morning, they were delayed. So this flight was delayed about 40 minutes from the time it was supposed to take off. And because of this, the passengers on this flight, so there were 37 passengers on this flight, and um, there were seven crew members, so there's 44 people total on this flight. Four of them are the terrorists on their suicide mission. And so there are 40 Americans on this flight, four who are... Who, who, seek to, who, who seek to die in this mission to attack our country. And so the 40 Americans are on this flight. They, they started, they, they, uh, the something, as the four terrorists uh, attacked the crew and then took over the plane with their knives, they said something over the, uh, over the cockpit saying something that there is a bomb on this flight. And so, as you can imagine, there, there's not a lot of people. There's not a lot of passengers on this. What they did was they grabbed the, the satellite phones and started calling their family members and their loved ones. And, and as they talked on the phone, because their flight was later than the other people's flights, they were behind time. So this, this terrorist mission was behind the times of all the others. It was supposed to coordinate so that all the planes would crash roughly about the same time into their targets. But since they took off later, they ended up taking 
for some reason, they, the, the, which nobody quite knows why, they took longer to take over the plane than the other terrorists on the other flights. And then this gave time for the different um, passengers on the flight to talk to their loved ones, and the loved ones relayed them the news that, that planes had hit the Twin Towers, and the World Trade Centers, and it was that, that, that radical Islamic terrorists were attacking the country with, with suicide mission. And so those passengers got to understand that they probably weren't going to make it alive off, off of this flight. <laughs> and it's, uh, or, you know, this has been incredibly studied, and there's a whole movie, that, um, there's been actually multiple movies uh, dedicated to this true story. <laughs> you can watch it, you can watch, get one of these movies yourself. Um, I, my, my wife and I, we have the movie United 93, and, um, and I reviewed this, this story in preparation for the sermon, and those passengers they came up with a plan. They came up with a plan, and it's a little bit unclear. It, was, it couldn't have been all 40 of them because there's some, some suspect that the, the crew members, some had already been either murdered or had been injured in order to take over the plane. And so the, it just took regular Joe Americans. There was even a pregnant woman on the flight. And there, you can go on Wikipedia, and their names are given. The names are given. There's even audio clips of some of the things that come through and what they chose to do with the last few remaining minutes of their life was to live their life in such a way worthy of something bigger than just themselves. That's what they chose to do. And this particular... So I'm listening to this story. It's a story I'm familiar with. I don't know all the details. But what this particular news digest was saying was, so as many of you know, so the passengers took over flight United 93. They, took, uh, they, they beat down the door. So they took, uh, I guess, you guys know what it's like to be on a plane, and then they have those, those big trays, and those are big, heavy trays where they have the food. And they took one of those things, and they bashed the door down because they, they had locked the, the cockpit. They bashed the door down. And in order to storm the cockpit, and that's how they were able to take over that plane. And as they did so, the, the flight had already kind of swung going from west, and then they started going back east. And as it happened, then the, the, the plane went into a tailspin and crashed over southwestern Pennsylvania. It was in a large field. Nobody else died except every single, every single person on the plane. And then something remarkable started to happen. Um, after this happened, there was a big investigation. Uh, there's like a big crater where the, where the plane crashed and all the people were, were killed. What started to happen was, I mean, it's just a big crater uh, uh, that's singed in, in this big field. And what started happening was Americans started to visit the field. People started to visit. They would, they would drive there, and this is what the news, I, I didn't know about this, the news I just started talking about how Americans would go to visit this field, and they would leave different and interesting things. Um, somebody had a brick that was actually from the, the Twin Towers collapsing, 
and they, and they had lost a family member in the World Trade Center, and they took that brick all the way to Pennsylvania, and they had written something on the brick, and they left it there as a tribute to those 40 Americans who sacrificed their lives for our country. And other people uh, started coming. I mean, literally thousands of people started visiting this place. And then a movement started to arise that there would be a memorial for what they did. And now there is. There is a United 93 memorial Congress passed you know, appropriations. It, was, it wasn't because our leaders thought of this. They didn't think of this at all. It wasn't people from Congress, powerful people from Washington, D.C., who had the idea to do this. It was just thousands and thousands of regular Americans who came to honor these 40 people who lived and then died in a way worthy of the things that we hold most dear. They literally died for freedom. They lived their lives worthy of freedom, and then they were willing to pay with their lives so that other people, they can be united with other people for the sake of freedom. Now you're starting to understand what this passage is talking about? I would like to ask you this question today. Do you live your life worthy for something? What is your life worthy for? Um, I gave a, a, a sermon a number of, of, of a few months ago, and it talked about our resume virtues versus our eulogy virtues. And what that and what it was talking about. It, this is from the uh, the commentator from the New York Times, David Brooks, and I'm citing his book, um, <clears throat> his book that he recently wrote about character. And in that book, he says that when that there's kind of like virtues that we celebrate in our, that he calls it the resume virtues, and that is on your resume, it says all the good things about you that you can do, your skills and your experience and so forth. And in our culture, we tend to be very, we tend to be very, we tend to be very obsessed with this person's resume, that person's resume, my resume. That is, a, it's like a, it's a piece of bragging point about what we consider is, gives us worth makes us worthy for the workforce. It gives us worth for our life because that resume, those are all my achievements. Those are all my skills. And that's what other people say. That's what gives you worth in our society. And that's why we feel ashamed if we, if we didn't have much of an education or if we don't have some kind of contributing skill or that's something that someone will say, I'll pay you an X amount of money for. So we feel that there's somehow like we are... Our society doesn't value those, uh, value us if we feel that our resume isn't strong. But what David Brooks said was the, the, what, the virtues that come out on your eulogy when you die, those are the ones that really matter more. And you notice every day we're adding to your, you're, you're adding in a sense what is said to you about, your, about you after you die in a eulogy, I don't know if you want to put it this way. When you go apply for a job and you give them their resume, it is a summary of your achievements 
and of your value that you're offering to them as a company. They're saying, because of these things, you should value me. You should add me to your team, to your company, and be willing to sacrifice an X amount of money. That's, it's a, it's, it's a, that's what that resume is all about. But after you die, when people stand up and say things about you, when a eulogy is given about you, in a sense, do you realize it's the resume of your life? It's a resume of the worthiness of your life and what you gave your life worthy for. And when all those thousand, I hear, according to Wikipedia, something like 100,000 people go to that, that United 93 monument, which just a few years ago didn't even exist. Um, and before it was even a monument, it was just a big crater in the ground where this tragic, horrific thing happened. And yet, people went there to said, these Americans, you lived a life worthy of something that we deeply, deeply cherish. And you united yourself to us. You sacrificed something in, because you were united to us and you called us back to our deepest, most important things of being united to each other, of having one mind and one spirit of something tremendously important that we're willing to stand up for and even sacrifice for. You lived your life this way. You gave your life this way. And that's what that monument was about. I was listening to this when I was driving my car. I'm an American. I, I really am an American, guys. I don't just see myself as a Korean. I really, I believe that freedom is costly. It's, worth, it's worthwhile. I believe that the lifestyle that we live here, because we treat each other with a certain tolerance, because we don't just impose things upon um, one another as neighbors and citizens, that that this is a gift from God, that human beings have a fundamental dignity and freedoms that must be protected and its costs. I believe, these, I believe in these things, and I believe in them because, not just partly because I'm a Christian, and that it's absolutely because I'm a Christian that these ideals that we've, we've uh, we brought into us as a nation, it actually flows, much of it flows out of the Bible. And we've lost our way much on this, but when I was driving my car, listening to this podcast, and they were talking about these people, I mean, I, can, I, I vividly remember the story of the, of, of the brick. It, it's, I, I, I almost started crying, driving to work. I'm driving to work in my car, listening to this thing, and it begins to move me because it reminds me that our life, you have to give your life to something worthy. It says right here, let your manner of life be worthy. Be worthy of what? And even more than political freedom, even more than even nations, because I don't know if you, you realize this, nations come and go, and as, as painful as it is to me as someone who deeply loves my country, one day America will not be here. And in fact, it is largely the last 10, 20 years of my life has been a slow, painful thing because I watch my country slowly, slowly, sometimes quickly, just give up the things that make our nation special. That, that, that's really valuable in our society because more and more we disdain these things. 
But that's our nation, and yet Paul is saying, live your life worthy for something far higher than even the values of our nation, the things that are worthy, something that is so worthy it is eternal, something that is so worthy that it takes the gospel is the entryway to know the true and living God, his kingdom, his, his attributes, his wisdom, his justice, his beauty, and these things will last forever, and no takers, no opponents will be able to defeat the beauty and worth of our God. And he says, so now, uh, he's in a prison. He's contemplating, as I talked about last week, I, I could die or I could stay. And if I stay for me to live as Christ, I want to be with you. And I'm going to live so that your life can be made more rich in Jesus. And then he, and then he shifts after he talks about this. And now he says, but now I call you to live a life worthy of the gospel. This is the first thing I want to talk about today. Do you think about this? Um, we live such tremendously distracted, shallow, and selfish lives. And I, I, I really mean we. I, I mean, I, I'm ashamed to say this, but I, I barely think about the cost that other people um, have paid to, so that we can have freedom. Um, Memorial Day to me that we had just a few months ago, Memorial Day to me is, the day, is a day off. <laughs> but it's not really a Memorial Day often. Um, Fourth of July to me, I love my country, but I spent maybe about one, or, you know, 30 minutes thinking about how I love my country. <laughs> and I'm a person who really loves my country. <laughs> that, that's how sad it is. That, and but... And I'm, 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 you know, I'm touching on something that is our nation. But really, every Sunday is Fourth of July Day for the kingdom of God. Really. Every Sunday is Memorial Day for the gospel, for Jesus. It is to remember, to fix your minds, that we live, we are here to live our life called and live our life worthy of something far bigger. And then when you have this, if you live your life this way, when you die, people will say things about you. People will know that you lived your life for something bigger than your own comforts and your own small pursuits. And people will say, wow, she lived a worthy life. Oh my goodness. That was a great life. It wasn't necessarily a rich life. It wasn't necessarily what we would consider a successful life in the, in the eyes of worldly values. But that is a life to aspire after. That's a life worth honoring. That's a funeral worth going to. <laughs> Taking your time off to... From work to say, this person's life I want to celebrate. This person I want to tell my children, you should be like her. I want to say to my, my son, hey, why he's going to say, why do we have to dress up and come to this event? It's a sad event. I said, it's not a sad event. This person lived a worthy life. They lived their life for something so great. I want you to be like this person. I want you to hear the stories of the people impacted by this person. 
of what they live for. And when you grow up and, and then after you pass away, your sons, your daughters, your friends, your neighbors, they will say, today's an important day. I'm not going to just use, do the same old, same old on this day. I have to go to that memorial service. I have to go to that funeral because Hudson Park is a worthy, worthy man. That's a life we must celebrate. A, a funeral should be a celebrating day. That's what I want to talk about in this first what is, your, what is worthy of your life? Part two, um, unity. It's a very strange thing. He shifts from saying live a life worthy of the gospel, and then, he, and then he turns and he says something that I think in our modern American lifestyle, it doesn't quite compute. It doesn't really make sense. He says this. This is what he says. I want you to live a life worthy of the gospel, and then he says whether I come and see you or am absent. And remember, when he says, if I'm absent, what he means is, that means because I, I got killed. He's in prison. He's not quite sure if he's going to make it. So whether I can get to go be there with you or not, or whether I'm absent because, well, maybe because I'm dead. I, this is what I would like to hear of you because I'm here in a prison about to die. I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The, the thing that is most worthy of our life. Most worthy of our blood, of our energy, and of our, that I would hear that you would gather together you, you plural, the Philippian church, you the church would gather together and you would strive to have one spirit, one mind, this tremendous, profound unity that stands and shines out to the world. We stand for something. We stand for something. We live for something. We will die for this. This is what I would like to hear of you. And you know that we live in a society where largely what it used to be that America believed in freedom, and that meant that some people would be willing to die for it, that some people would live their life unto certain disciplines and honor codes in the case, hopefully they would not need to, that they would need to go die for it. And so, I don't know if you're like this, when I watch certain TV shows and movies, and they talk about the Marines, and they say the Marines believe in Semper Fi. I don't know if you guys know what Semper Fi is. Semper Fi is it's a reference to an, a, a Latin phrase, Semper Fidelis, which basically means always faithful, to the very, very end. And Marines have this really powerful honor code that means if one of us is left behind, if we have to go and die to go get that guy, we will, because we are Semper Fidelis. And all of this is we, they, they discipline their bodies and their minds and their hearts by constantly talking about Semper Fi, and they go, Semper Fi, and they talk about this. And because they're, they're actually, and they're, they're not in battle. This is just, and they say, who am I? I'm a Marine. And what do we stand for? Semper Fi. And when I watch this, 
When I watch this in movies, I, I love it. <laughs> I just, I love it. Um, I was, uh, I, I know that if, if one of my, if, well, I only have one son, you know, if my son would ever want to go into in the military, I definitely want him to go to the Marines. Um, and my wife, one of her favorite TV shows is, is um, NCIS. And the lead character of, of NCIS is, is this guy named Gibbs, and he's a Marine, and, every, and what he is is he's an investigator for the Navy, and every time when certain crimes happen in the Navy, he, his team has to go investigate them, and Every now and then, I don't know if you know this, but the, technically the Marines are a subdivision of the Navy. Apparently, they're like the toughest hombres of the Navy. I didn't know that okay? but until a while back. But um, Gibbs is in the Navy because he's a Marine. And then every now and then, he has to go an extra mile. He has to sometimes sacrifice his reputation and his career to stick his neck out on the line for a Marine whose, whose, whose very name and reputation is being besmirched because he's being accused of a crime. And he will go into that person, and he'll, he'll go into that person's, he'll meet their family, he'll find out, he doesn't just try to solve the crime, he actually will lay down, he'll go this extra mile to find out what quality of man he was because he lives out Semper Fi. And that's my wife's favorite TV show, but those are some of my favorite episodes. When Gibbs the Marine, and, and, his, and, at, and you know, at the end of the episode, you're just like, Gibbs, you're awesome. I want to be like you. Really, I do. <laughs> I think it's one of the reasons why, I don't know if you know this, it's one of the most popular shows in America. And I think it's one of the most popular shows in America because Gibbs is a worthy man. He lives a worthy life. That we Americans, we, we watch that and we're like, that's a worthy American. The way he lives his life is for something bigger. And then, this is the part, he has a team, and all the rest of his team, he draws them together into unity. They have this powerful unity on the team. And they are willing to sacrifice their lives one of the, there's this ep, there's a there's a character on the show. She's not even American. <laughs> she's on the show. She was an assassin. She's an Israeli assassin from Mossad. <laughs> and then she so admires Gibbs, and she starts to see Gibbs as like a father to her that she becomes an American, <laughs> and she joins the team. And there's this incredible, beautiful unity. On that team. Now, I know it's a TV show. But that kind of unity that they display on that team, that's kind of the kind of thing Paul is talking about. That's the kind of thing Paul is talking about. Except, this is how Paul thinks about church. <laughs> this is how Paul thinks about church. And it's a very odd and alien thing. We're, like I said, we're, and it's, it's me too, on Memorial Day, I'm thinking about me, and it's my day off. It's like, oh, okay, I work, and I'm tired, and now it's my day off. This is, this is like the default of the way we've, we, we, we've become accustomed to think out here in the Bay Area and operate. And it's pretty sad. <laughs> it's really sad. 
And I noticed that this is the way too many American Christians treat church. Here we are, the, the, mo- the, 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 the truth that is most, it's even greater than American freedom. It's the gospel. The message that will save us from hell and damnation, from the devil, from our own just rottenness, because Jesus, the Son of God, came to give us what we could never deserve. That is worth our life. That is what church is about. And yet, we often think church is it's just, it's just, so, it's just yet another thing, another day for me. It's not a memorial day, but if we're going to live our life worthy of something bigger, and this is the biggest thing we could give our life that's worthy to, the gospel, it requires a, more than a me. Like this, this meanness, the, the, the small, pathetic prison of my small, shallow life where we're constantly focused on the, the resume virtues, not the eulogy virtues. With this, we have to break out of this, and we have to run to a we that when we gather together with others, people can sense that other people believe this. This is one of the things that make America really weak. America is now not a country much of, of much of a we. It's really much of a country of like 350 million me's. And that's why when a bunch of we's, four of them, I think that what they were seeking to do was wicked and evil and despicable. But when those four terrorists were saying, we're a we and we'll die for this. What do we have in America that we could say that about? And I, I mean, I know, I know this is a really heavy thing that I'm saying, but honestly, isn't that really pathetic? Isn't that really pathetic? Um, so many Asian American immigrants, and a lot of this church you know, has Asian immigrants, we don't want our children to go to the military because if they go to the military, they might have to actually suffer. Some might actually have to die. And then they won't get to live a nice, rich, comfortable life because that's why we came to this country, so that we can live the rich, comfortable life of the me. And my child has to get the rich, comfortable life of the me so they can't go into the military. In the schools, we don't even say the Pledge of Allegiance anymore. As a, as a boy, I grew up saying... I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States. I said that every single, I, I said it so many times, I could still say it. Just, just, and I love in the seventh inning when we stand up for God bless America in baseball games. I love that stuff. But we don't even, it's like this mindless ritual now. And we bring that spirit of me into church because church is the place where I just shop for my religion, and i got to get something out of it from me. And then the Christians show up, and there's, it's such a lack of a we, so that because everybody else is doing the game plan of the me, we, we're, even those of us who want a stronger we, we get discouraged. Oh, I just go, go back to being, doing the me, me, my, the game, me, me, me game plan. But what Paul says is, if you're going to live a life worthy, draw toward each other. Run toward each other. 
you know, rebuke each other, encourage each other, pick one another up, put down your, your me priorities, put that down, put that down. Sacrifice some of your money and your time to run to the we so we can gather together in the name of Jesus to live this life together and prod each other to live our life for the most worthy thing there is the gospel. And when I hear of this, that you do, you're doing this, oh, even though I, I may be rotting here in prison, I will, oh, I will, you will give me joy if I hear that you do this. All our gatherings, whether it's a Sunday morning or a small group or we're going to go out and play volleyball together, it should all have this quality. <laughs> and it doesn't mean it always have to be so super serious, but this, I'm unified with these brothers and sisters, and we are living for, and we are willing to sacrifice for the thing that's most worthy of our life. It's worthy of my son's life. It's worthy of my daughter's life. It's worthy to pass right down to my grandchildren. And when I die, my son will come to my, my funeral and all these other, all my brothers and sisters from church will come to my funeral. And even non-Christians, even people who don't go to church, they will say, man, that guy was worthy of, I, I mean, I don't even know if I believe in Jesus, but the stories they will say about me, my, grand, my grandchildren will hear, hit the, the wife of my grandchildren will hear, and they will say, wow, they, they came together into a tremendous unity. That was a worthy life. See? Um, let me be a little mean to some of you now. Um, when you come to church, please come on time. Not just for yourself, but for the we. <laughs> to spur on your brothers and sisters. We came here to live a life worthy of Jesus. <laughs> and if you come... You come joyfully. You come not just for yourself. Oh, the, 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 I don't like the songs. I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> oh, I, I, the, the, the music part. I, I don't get much out of the music part. I just like the preaching part. So that's why you show up at 1020. <laughs> but actually, if you sing the song, and she sings a song, and he sings a song, and we all sing it together... <laughs> It, it, it empowers the we, the unity. See? And then, when someone shows up at our church, maybe they're a Christian or they're not a Christian, and they're, they're coming, and so many people, okay, someone who hasn't been to church in many, many years. So there's somebody who hasn't been to church in many years. Maybe they've been living a very decadent lifestyle. They've, they've been sleeping around, and this has not worked out for them. They've been just spending their money all on me, 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 and then their life has, heart, has started to get empty. And somehow, somewhere through the grace of God, they've been willing to step back into church again. Those people, when they step into the room, do you know that they're nervous? Do you know that they're afraid? They're afraid that... They're going to show up into a room and there's going to be all these goody two-shoes Christians and they're going to be judged. <laughs> or everybody else just shows up just to hang out with their friends and since they're not a part of that friend network, they will be ignored. 
And I don't know if you know this, but in a church, if the pastor is kind to the newcomer, they just go, oh, he's doing his job. I guess he's, he's, he, must be, he's, he must be a good pastor. He does his job. But if one regular average member will show kindness and welcome, if two regular average members will show kindness and welcome to someone who's new, whether they're a Christian or not a Christian or just, you know what happened? You know how, what they think? What they think is the church welcomed me. Not the pastor. The church welcomes me. And while they're here, do you know that anybody new in the church, they're checking out the whole church. They're looking at everything. They're looking at our walls, and they're going to go, oh, no artwork on the walls, bare in this room. Okay, that's probably what they're going to say. Okay, they're, they're checking out the pastor. They're going to like, oh, he dresses badly, okay? <laughs> um, they're, they're checking out the music, and they're looking at us. They're looking at us. And they're going to say, do these people love each other? Do these people believe in this stuff about God? Will they live their life in a way that their life is filled with something that matters? Oh my goodness, is this, is God, because people who don't know Jesus, people who don't believe in the gospel, they can't tell the difference. So you know, they don't know the Bible. Some of you don't feel like you know the Bible. So they're like, I hope the pastor knows what he's talking about. I hope he sounds like he knows what he's talking about. Those are some of the things they do. But one of the, the biggest things that the world does to figure out if the, our claims about God is even worth listening to is they just look at us. They look at us. Do we live United 93 type of lives? Will we gather together and have joy and, and then put the meanness down? Well, you get together and come on. Unity in America is one of the hardest things to achieve. You notice that? You root for the Golden State Warriors, and they had a championship this year. Yay, right? And then next year, a couple of them are going to leave for more money, and a couple of them are going to have a big fight over something, and, and then that's gonna, that gossip is going to get the, into the papers. And the unity lasted for a few months. And it's great to watch them love each other and hug each other because they want a championship. But it lasted literally for a few months. And that feeling that the barrier, oh, we're all united because we love the Warriors and they want a championship, it lasts not even a month. <laughs> but when people look at the church, they're checking us out. And one of the most powerful things that can shine and say, Jesus is real and Jesus is worthy is when they look at, they see this unity filled with united 93 type people. Let me get to the final portion of my message. The test of suffering and the union with Christ. It's interesting that he says, he says, I, I, I want you to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel and not be afraid in anything by your opponents. And in the history of America, if you didn't go to church or believe in God, you were considered weird. But more and more now, we're at a place in the development of our culture 
where more and more now, if you do believe in God and you go to church and you believe in Jesus, and especially if you really care about believing in Jesus, you will be more and more disdained and rejected. And there are more and more, I mean, literally, there are people in our country that are seeking to change the laws to take away tax exemption from churches, to take away freedom of religion, and more and more turn people who believe in the gospel into second-class citizens. More and more, it used to be believing in Jesus was part and parcel being a good citizen of the United States. And now, now believing in Jesus is more and more a despised person in the United States. And how can we shine to a people like this? And what this is, it's, it's a test it's a test of the question of what do you live your life worthy for. Suffering, you know, God doesn't disdain suffering. Actually, the life that God wants for you and me is not some perfect life where we're always healthy and we're always happy and we're always comfortable and we get a great career and we get the great we get the great husband or wife and our children are never sick. That isn't necessarily God's will for your life. Do you know that? God actually wants there to be suffering in our life. And he actually is, does not mind that the world will attack us and impose suffering on us. Because then, now, at that point, we will now have to choose and see once again what is our life about. And it will now force us and push us to, to come and say, go run to the unity. When more and more of our culture will begin to disdain us and oppose us, you know what you need? You need the we. <laughs> you need your brothers and sisters. And so the Lord actually, it's probably very much God's will because we Christians have gotten so me-oriented and so shallow, he's like saying, apparently, Jesus isn't their Lord. That's what the Father is looking at. He's like, my son is not their American's Lord. Among the Christians. I'm like saying, let's go raise up a generation that will run to unity. That'll be like United 93 type Christians. And one way we'll do this is to afflict them and make them count a cost. And put down some of their selfish patterns and comfort zones and all the ways they control their time in their life and say, I've got to reshape this so that they'll run more to the we. It's a test. But if I end the sermon this way, I've basically just said, be like Gibbs, Semper Fidelis, United 93, and that's cool, isn't it? I mean, I, I like those messages too. But at this church, that's not enough. Many of you, you're afraid. And we have so many patterns in our life, have been running the me playbook for so long, it's going to take some time. And it's going to take a, a power far greater than me just cattle prodding you with guilt and honor code. <laughs> And United 93 and Semper Fidelis and all this language, it's going to take a lot more than that. And what I have to give you, which is what I always want to give you, 
is that which makes Jesus worthy of your sacrifice. In the gospel, Jesus came to suffer so that we would be united to him. See, there's that word, united to him. There's a person named Jesus, and there's a person named Susang. And then what does he want? Jesus came to suffer so that he could invite this guy named Susang to become united to him, and they would become one. Obviously, I'm not going to lose my individual. I'm still my own person. But now I willingly run to this person, Jesus, and under him, I will become a we with him, not just a me. And then he does that for you and you and you and all of us. And the gospel, we call this union with Christ. Jesus paid a price so that he can say, you, instead of you just running around in your meanness, come and join with me and be one with me. And then you know what? The Lord spills out. I talked about this last week. He's, if we are united with Jesus, he will draw us into the life of the triune God himself. And in the life of the triune God, each person, this is astounding, each person of the Holy Trinity, none of them think about the me. Even the Father, the Father who is Almighty God over everything, everything sings to Him. Every star, every fleck, every dust must bow down to the Father, but He doesn't think about the me. He actually is willing to put down His glory and hand it to the Son so that the Son could now go spill that glory out through suffering and then invite all these pathetic, selfish people like you and me into this incredible, unified koinonia called the triune life. Where in it is this is, a, is the most eternal semper fidelis there's ever been. <laughs> if I could put it that way. Where the Father has been constantly being, having, showing fidelity to His Son and putting down His prerogatives for the unity of the Trinity. And that is what the union with Christ is for. The union with Christ is to take us all in and take the church and bring it right into the profound life of the Trinity. And then on this earth, just like Jesus, when the world attacks that life, attacks that unity, and then we return their hatred with a love back toward them. We return their despising with a grace and mercy back toward them. And though they inflict harm upon us, we take in the harm and then we pick each other up for the sake of Jesus, the powerful triune life of God will shine out, that unified life will shine out into the world and people will begin to go, oh my goodness, we attack them and they become more joyful. We disdain them and they become more unified. They must have God. That must be the true and living God. And it's a beautiful thing. And that's what this passage calls you to. That's what I call you to. That's what I call us to. 
And it doesn't take a lot of people. Oh, we're a small church. We're not going to make much. It doesn't have anything to do with the number of people. <laughs> if we will have that unity, just, just all kinds of crazy, astounding things can happen when that beauty of God starts to shine out into each other and then into our city. And they'll begin to really see the worth, the worthiness of the gospel, the beauty of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, we are mostly selfish and cowardly. We're very calculating. And I know I've been saying this multiple times, but that's because I feel so sad for me and for us that our habits are so geared this. We pray that your spirit, Jesus, the spirit which is who is very much God himself, the Holy Spirit, would pour down on us and would kill this spirit of meanness. And you would draw us together into a unity which being united to you through the gospel was all about. And we begin to encourage each other, even rebuke each other, and pick each other up into this remarkable thing we call the Jesus-centered family and a oneness which will shine so bright that people can't help but be attracted to it. People can't help but say, what is that? These people, it's not just that pastor or this guy or this music. This is church. (laughs) It's a family. It's a united, loving family. It's a suffering family. It's a joyful family. It's a powerful family. Their God must be a real God. Pray that you would put this in, in, our, in our retreat this next upcoming weekend. You would put your spirit in our Gospel Life family groups. You would put this on every single Sunday, which is Memorial Day for the Gospel. Every time we do something, even like a, a volleyball tournament, your spirit would pour out this unified joy, the life of the Trinity. And it would powerfully encourage us and it would make us run more and more and live a life worthy of the gospel which we spread to our children and our friends and our neighbors. So do this. Jesus, we're too weak and we're too selfish. But if you will... Pour out your spirit, and if the power of your cross would be in us, would you move us to go toward each other and to you? You need to do this to us, Jesus. We long for you and ask of you to do this to us in our retreats and our small groups and all that we do. Make us this way. In Jesus' name. <clears throat>